At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 42, American Spymaster, J. Edgar Hoover. So in this episode, we will be taking a condensed view of J. Edgar Hoover's life and who he was. Naturally, this episode will touch on the history of the FBI, but the episode will primarily focus on the life and influence of Hoover and his impact on the United States and the course of the Cold War. This episode will not focus on all of his political decisions or events in his life, but will primarily center on his personal life to provide insight to his character and to provide some background for future episodes about the FBI and American politics in the 1950s and 1960s. If you're interested in the organizational structure and history of the FBI, I would recommend checking out episode 41 about the early history of the FBI And stay tuned as I plan on making additional episodes about the FBI during subsequent decades of the Cold War. Moreover, if you haven't already done so, I would also recommend listening to episode 41 as it will provide background to the topics and events of this episode. As always, this episode was made possible by our Patreon supporters and one-time contributions we receive through the website. So if you'd like to become a contributor to the show or follow us on social media for additional Cold War content, Check out the website at www.historythecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Now on with the show. The 20th century witnessed the rise of large and sophisticated internal security services throughout the world. In Britain, the chief domestic security organization became MI5. Nazi Germany had the infamous Gestapo and SS. The later GDR had the Strazi. In the Soviet Union, the KGB became the preeminent domestic and foreign intelligence service In the United States, the FBI became the dominant domestic and intelligence law enforcement institution. Espionage and domestic security forces had existed before the 20th century. The Praetorian Guard had a similar status in ancient Rome, and the Ottoman Empire had its Caesarians. Yet institutions like the FBI and KGB represented something fundamentally new in the organization of the state. Yes, in many nations, local and even national police forces had long existed, but these new security forces were more heavily armed than their forebears and more highly organized. Joining either the FBI or NKVD wasn't like joining a typical police department. These men were on average more intelligent, highly educated, and better physically conditioned than your local cop. They utilized the latest organizational techniques and technologies. They achieved a level of mass surveillance and mass data collection, the size and scope of which had never been attempted, let alone contemplated in the past. Originally, these forces were established to deal with domestic and intelligence threats. Nevertheless, these institutions inevitably became highly political and became autonomous branches of their respective state under the control of single-minded bureaucrats. In the United States, that man was J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover's life is, in many ways, shrouded in mystery and propaganda. Similar to Beria, Stalin, or Mao, Hoover constructed his own cult of personality. 
To millions of Americans, he was a hero, becoming synonymous with truth and justice and the core values of America, liberty, fairness, and bravery. Endless publicity had made Hoover a living icon showered with honors. President Truman awarded him the Medal of Merit for outstanding service to the country. Eisenhower chose him as the first ever recipient of the Award for Distinguished Federal Service, the highest honor a civilian civil servant could receive. Nonetheless, much of this image built up by Hoover was blatantly false. Hoover was born on New Year's Day, 1895. It goes without saying that America was a very different place in 1895 than it is today. The Civil War was still fresh in the American consciousness. Hundreds of thousands of veterans were alive with both the physical and emotional scars of the war. Just four years before Edgar's birth, the Lakota people, one of the last great Western Native tribes, was crushed at Wounded Knee, marking the end to Native resistance and the closing of the West. Meanwhile, in the South, Jim Crow and segregation were the law of the land. The motion pictures and electric lights were still marvels. The telephone was only used by the government and the very rich. There was less than 150 miles of paved roads in the nation and only a few thousand cars. The airplane didn't exist yet and flight was still a dream. By the time Hoover died, jumbo 747 planes transported people to far-flung places of the world. Color TV broadcasts connected people to events and places as never before, and man had even landed on the moon. Segregation and Jim Crow was being painfully deconstructed. America was engaged in a global ideological struggle against communism. At home, the nation was deeply divided. Protests, riots, and bombings tore at the very social fabric of the nation. In Southeast Asia, the U.S. was bogged down in a war many considered unwinnable, which was costing the lives of hundreds of Americans a week. Hoover grew up about a mile from the White House in a white frame house. His father, Dickerson Hoover, was the descendant of settlers who'd moved to Washington in the early 19th century. Dickerson worked as a printmaker for the government mapping department. His mother, Anna, was from a distinguished minor Swiss noble family. His mother had a privileged upbringing and had attended private school in Washington. In many ways, in marrying Dickerson, she had married below her station in life. Edgar was the last of four children. He had an older brother, Dickerson Jr., and three older sisters, although one of them, Sadie, had died at three from diphtheria. Hoover was, by all accounts, a nervous child, sickly, fearful, and always clinging to his mother. He started at Brent Elementary School in 1901 when he was six. Hoover was an excellent student and received top scores from the third to the eighth grades. Foreshadowing his future life, Hoover began to keep files on even his teachers, grading them on their teaching performance. Edgar, as a boy, would often walk the streets of Washington by himself, visiting his father at his office. At 11, he started his own newspaper and persuaded his older brother to type it up for him. The paper was named The Weekly Review, and he sold it to his family and friends for one cent a copy. Review offered family news along with short articles about famous Americans like Lincoln or Benjamin Franklin. By 13, he began to keep a diary, noting daily temperatures, cloud cover, deaths in the family, and his income from doing odd jobs. He even listed his hat, shoe, and collar size. Hoover's family in general was very peculiar in its obsession with about keeping organized and clean. Everything was cataloged, and all the pictures were dusted and kept straight on the wall. Hoover publicly always claimed to be a religious and God-fearing man. He even spread a false story claiming he had considered joining the priesthood in his youth, which was a lie. Neither of Hoover's parents were especially devout or religious people. Dickerson Sr. considered himself Lutheran and Annie a Catholic, but neither attended church on a regular basis. 
Edgar publicly claimed to be Presbyterian, but would consult many Catholic priests on religious matters. His brother, Dickerson Jr., was, however, very religious and attended Lutheran Mass regularly. Edgar would often accompany his brother to church and served as an altar boy and was baptized at 13 into the Lutheran faith. Strangely enough, during this time, Edgar became fascinated with the Judas Gospel, a fictional account written by Christ's betrayer. Decades later, he would have FBI researchers check into the biblical details for him. Later in life, like his parents, Hoover rarely if ever attended church despite what newspapers or magazine articles wrote. Hoover was like many boys of his era. He celebrated holidays like Easter and April Fool's Day. He played cops and robbers. He was fascinated with flight and briefly met Orville Wright when he flew to Washington to demonstrate his airplane in 1909. In the fall of 1909, Edgar started high school at the prestigious Central High School, a three-mile walk from his home. This was unlike his brother and sister who had attended Eastern High. Central High was the breeding ground of the Washington elite and a springboard to success. Similar to British public schools of the period, it placed a great emphasis on sport. Hoover always wanted to be a great athlete, but with his short, thin figure, he wasn't a natural athlete. He looked up to men with strong physical physiques and became friends with many of the jocks at school, including Biff Jones, who became a famous football coach at West Point. Hoover was also a member of the school cadet corps and earned the nickname Speedy as a result of how quickly he spoke. Despite not being athletic, Hoover was extremely competitive. His grades throughout high school were excellent, and he graduated valedictorian. Once, after losing a drill competition as a cadet captain, he broke out and cried on the field. During high school, Hoover didn't date any girls, and when the cadet ball came around, he didn't dance with a single one. Over the years, there's been a ton of debate around Hoover's sexuality, but the preponderance of evidence seems to suggest he was a homosexual, or at the very least, deeply confused about his sexuality. Much of the evidence we have around his sexuality is circumstantial, rumor, or stories. As far as I'm aware, we have no hard evidence such as written statements or photographs that would prove definitively that he was gay. On the other hand, that this does not confirm him as a heterosexual. If he were gay, he would have been careful not to out himself. Many of his private papers and documents were destroyed after his death by his trusted associate, presumed lover, by many, Clyde Tulson, and his lifelong personal secretary, Helen Gandy. Two leading medical authorities, Dr. John Money, professor of medical psychology at John Hopkins, and Dr. Harold Life of Psychiatry, University of Pennsylvania, concluded that Edgar was probably a bisexual with a strong homosexual inclination and failed heterosexuality. Some historians have asked the question, does it even matter if he was or wasn't? It's impossible for us to know one way or the other, barring some new evidence. Most of those who have accused him of homosexuality were his political enemies. Labeling someone a homosexual was a common smear tactic of the period. Hoover himself labeled enemies homosexuals and outed real-life homosexuals destroying their lives. Homosexuality during the period of the Cold War was a clear taboo in the minds of many, akin to bestiality or incest in our contemporary age. I think Hoover's sexuality, real or imagined, does matter because people during the period used it as a weapon against him. As we will see, there is much speculation around the decisions that he made, and many attribute those decisions and actions to his homosexuality. Those that believe he was not homosexual contend that Hoover had a fear of becoming too close with people and point to the tragic fate of his father. His father had suffered from a mental breakdown. He was sent to the asylum some 18 miles from Washington. 
We're not entirely sure what happened, as it was a guarded family secret, and in later life, Edgar never spoke of his father, even to his closest friends. From what little we know, he suffered from depression and irrational fears, and repeated trips to the asylum failed to help, and his health steadily declined. When Dickerson Sr. died in 1921, his cause of death was listed as melancholy, or what we would today list as clinical depression. This would put considerable financial strain on the family, as Edgar had to work to support his mother, as his older siblings had already had families of their own. Other than his mother, Hoover was never close with the rest of his family, and rarely spoke to them as he grew older. When his widowed sister was struck with Parkinson's disease, he did little to help. The only constant family connection that he would keep was his mother, whom he lived with until her death in 1938. He subsequently would live alone the rest of his life. In 1913, Hoover graduated from high school and decided to attend law school. Hoover attended George Washington Law School. It wasn't the most prestigious of local universities at the time, but it had a respectable law program and night classes allowing Hoover to work during the day. Hoover found a job as a junior messenger at the Library of Congress for $30 a week. While attending college, he became a member of the fraternity Kappa Alpha, a Southern fraternity with its origins at William & Mary College. GWU graduates and Kappa Alpha brothers would be some of his closest associates for the rest of his life, as he made it a habit of recruiting them to the FBI. Hoover's classmates and frat brothers remember him as a slim, dark, and intense. He managed the fraternity house, and he was a stickler for rules. He took a dim look on gambling and drinking in the house. When Hoover graduated with his law degree in 1916, the nation was inching towards war. Hoover, meanwhile, had managed to get a job working in the mailroom of the Justice Department thanks to family connections. This fact was kept hidden in later years as Hoover claimed that he was given a clerkship. Hoover did make a strong impression with strong work and ethic and intelligence and was transferred to the War Emergency Division as the nation had just entered the war that spring. That December, Hoover was made a special agent at 22 and began investigating and registering German women living in the United States. He worked seven days a week and late into the evening. Hoover's boss took notice, and he received three raises within his first year at the Justice Department. You might be asking, though, at 23 and World War I raging, why wasn't Hoover drafted to fight? The answer, like much of Hoover's life, isn't entirely clear. All American men aged 21 to 30 were required to register for the draft within weeks of America's declaration of war. In the end, some 3 million Americans were drafted to fight in the war, and some 150,000 of whom never came home. Hoover was a perfect candidate for the draft. He had cadet corps training in, in high school. Later in life, in 1922, he joined the Army Reserves as an officer. In World War II, as a lieutenant colonel in his late 40s, he volunteered to be activated, but George Marshall said he could best serve the country as director of the FBI. Hoover's always maintained that he wanted to join up, but his superiors persuaded him he would be more valuable doing espionage work at home. This seems unlikely, though, as Hoover at this point still held a very minor position. More than likely, he followed a deferment, as he was the family's sole breadwinner, making him eligible for exemption. Yet we have no record of him claiming this exemption. During the war years, Hoover also became romantically involved with a female co-worker, as related to us by Hoover himself, and Helen Gandy, who was a witness to the events. Apparently, the girl, Alice, he was dating, had been dating another man who had left to fight in France therefore dating Hoover while her original boyfriend was overseas. When her boyfriend returned from war, she quickly dumped Hoover and married her first boyfriend, breaking Hoover's heart. 
Despite this personal setback in November 1918, at 23, he was elevated to special attorney with a salary of 2000 a year, as much as his father had been earning. Nevertheless, as America celebrated the end of World War I, Edgar's future was uncertain. The War Emergency Division was disbanded. He applied to join the Immigration Department, but was turned down, but was given a favorable mention to Attorney General Palmer. Palmer remembered Hoover and, with the Red Scare, made him the special assistant to himself and the head of the new Radical Division to gather evidence on ultra-radical groups. In many ways, the job was custom-made for Hoover. His love of records and cataloging was put to use in building a massive card index of left-wing radicals. The index proved to be extremely efficient by the standards of the period in retrieving information within a few minutes from a large collection of data. As we saw last episode, he also directed mass arrests against the Union of Russian Workers and the American Communist Party and facilitated the deportation of thousands of foreigners. In the end, both Hoover and Palmer came under intense criticism. Hoover claimed to have only been following orders and placed responsibility on Palmer. Hoover did learn some lessons from his experience in the Red Scare. For one, despite the political backlash, the raids had been successful in destroying the Communist Party. Membership, which had been at about 80,000 before the raids, dwindled to about 6,000 by late 1920. He had also learned the values of spying on people and the value of not being caught. He also learned about politics and the danger of allegiance to any one politician, in this case Palmer. After this, Hoover strove to appear above politics. He never joined a political party and never voted. He told the media that he was not political and didn't like labels. Edgar kept his political beliefs hidden. He could be all things to all people. Liberals who met him would leave his office convinced that he was at heart a Democrat, and Republicans who spoke with him were sure that he was a conservative at heart. Yet Edgar was extremely political. He was a staunch right-wing supporter of the Republican Party until his death. Hoover had very few friends that were Democrats, and his Republican friends never questioned his allegiance. In 1921, with the help of Harry Dottery, he was named the assistant director of the Bureau. Hoover struck a deal with Dottery, whereas he spied on his Democratic opponents, and Dottery allowed Hoover to monitor the communists. With the rise of FDR and the Democrats, Hoover's non-political front helped to save him. Despite their close cooperation and his public declarations of respect and loyalty, Hoover hated FDR and didn't trust the liberals around him. He especially hated the vice president, Henry Wallace, and Harry Hopkins, the father of some of the most important New Deal programs. Roosevelt's personal view of Hoover is unfortunately lost to history, but Roosevelt's goals and that of Hoover's coalesce despite whatever personal views they may have had of one another. FDR had a much more expansionist view of the powers of the president versus former presidents. Moreover, he believed in a much greater role of the federal government in the day-to-day -day lives of Americans. He saw the FBI as a tool that could be used for much more than law enforcement, that could be used for political purposes. Hoover, who might disagree with FDR's political beliefs, nonetheless agreed that the FBI should wield greater power and political influence in society. During the early 1920s, Hoover became a Mason and would remain a member throughout his life, achieving the highest rank of 33 degrees. During this time, Hoover had no girlfriend, but socially hung out with Frank Bauman, a former classmate. The two liked to hit the town in white linen suits and saw the movies on Sunday. By his own account, Hoover's true love at this time was his dog, DeBozo, whom he kept a photograph of on his desk. DeBozo was one of many dogs Hoover would own over the course of his life. Of all of his achievements, probably the most enduring has been his reorganization of the Bureau. 
Since the start of his tenure until today, very few FBI agents have been arrested on corruption charges. As we outlined last episode, Hoover quickly fired corrupt and incompetent agents and invested heavily into technology. Edgar's dream of universal fingerprinting never happened, but the small file room he created of fingerprints soon grew to a huge L-shaped clearinghouse in the Department of Justice and later to a six-story building occupying an entire city block. By the time Edgar died in 1972, a computerized identification division had the fingerprints of 159 million Americans on file. Hoover also founded a national academy to train his agents. This is at a time when there are very little qualifications to become a police officer. Many FBI agents would go on in the coming years to head local police departments. Agents were well paid for the time and had to agree to be stationed anywhere in the United States. They had a strict dress code of wearing a suit with a white shirt and a tie, although wearing a red tie was forbidden. He also fired agents caught drinking, even on their personal time, and this continued well after Prohibition into the 1960s. Agents came from a cross-section of American life, including former farmers, pilots, journalists, a baker, professional football players, cowboys, railroad workers, and miners. Some had military experience, and Hoover liked to hire former Marines. Nonetheless, he disliked hiring blacks, Hispanics, Jews, or women. There were three women serving agents in 1924 when he became director, and two were fired within a month. He confirmed a third after pressure from Congress, but she was eventually dismissed as she ended up in a mental hospital for threatening to shoot Hoover. Hoover didn't want to recruit women as he thought they were incapable of participating in a shootout, one of the necessary qualifications of an agent. Most of the women that did work for the agency were clerical staff. He forbid women from smoking in the office as he thought it was unladylike, and he refused for women to wear pants to the office until 1971. When a girl in the fingerprint division became pregnant out of wedlock, he fired her immediately. He didn't want people to believe that the Bureau hired women of ill repute. Hoover's attitude towards women set the tone at the FBI, and female employees were looked down on with contempt, unavoidable to keep the Bureau's paperwork flowing. Edgar didn't like Hispanics because he believed that they were psychological liars and that they could only cared about making money. Moreover, he didn't believe that they could shoot well and were more suited to knife fighting. Hoover had no foreign friends and a deep distrust of foreigners. Except for a couple of trips to Canada and Mexico, he never traveled outside the United States. He once even refused an interview with Dwight Martin because his wife was Chinese and to him a potential spy. Hoover believed that African Americans were fine people and disagreed with violence being taken against them by forces like the Klan. Yet he did believe that they were inferior to whites and believed that they should be denied access to professional careers. Moreover, he thought the idea that blacks should be addressed as Mr. or Sir was ridiculous as he preferred they be addressed as boy. Edgar had grown up in the segregated South. Washington was a notoriously racist city through much of its history. He had been born at a time when blacks were expected to be servants and happy for that privilege. A black maid had waited on Edgar's family when he was a child, and Central High was an all-white school. Edgar's prejudice may have had deep-seated personal reasons as well. Through his youth and middle age, it was rumored that Hoover's family had black in them. His mother's side of the family could be traced all the way back to Switzerland. His father's ancestry, on the other hand, was vague, only tracing back to some two generations. Hoover's family was accused of passing or having enough of a, of a white complexion to pass as white. Even Helen Gandy spoke of the rumor that Hoover had black in him. During Hoover's youth at the turn of the century, 
People were known to commit suicide if it was discovered that they had passed. To be thought a black person at the time was a deeply humiliating slur in white society, as blacks were thought to be inferior people. Whether or not this rumor was true, it must have caused endless distress to Edgar. This was before the days of 23andMe or Ancestry.com. One could never know for sure, just as he possibly compensated for his secret homosexuality by lashing out at homosexuals. So Edgar could have worried about his racial identity, and this may have shaped his behavior towards blacks. As we outlined last episode, of the 15 blacks employed by the FBI, five served him directly, either as chauffeurs, gardeners, or servants. One of his favorites was Sam Nozette, who was his messenger and office doorkeeper. Nozette was a talented artist, having painted a picture of Hoover's dog, DeBozo, which Hoover hung in his office. Hoover encouraged Nozette's painting and had bought a few of his works, which he hung in his house, and he convinced other politicians and members of the FBI to buy. One of Hoover's chauffeurs, Leo McLaren, was a full-time legitimate agent in Miami, but was Hoover's driver whenever Hoover came to town. Until the 1960s, the FBI remained primarily a white organization, although Robert Kennedy constantly nagged Hoover about the need to hire more African Americans. When Hoover died in 1972, some 70 African Americans were serving the FBI, and by the end of the Cold War in 1991, some 500 were agents, though they only composed some 4.8% of the Bureau's 10,360 workforce. Even if you were white and came from the right school, you could still be rejected for the smallest of reasons. Some agents were rejected for the shape of their faces. You could be rejected for having sweaty palms, a trait Hoover hated. Premature balding or too many pimples could also see you become disqualified. Liberals were passed over and those liberals that did join the Bureau were quickly moved sideways or out of the Bureau. The Academy and FBI in general at the time was very right-wing, and most agents ended up being politically neutered, at best or at worst right-wing zealots. Hoover was a stickler for little things and had a fixation on tidiness. He worried constantly about germs and waged a war against them by ensuring that the office would remain cold. Later, he installed an ultraviolet light reputed to eliminate viruses. He shrank from the contact with strangers and hated people with moist palms. Agents had to spend a minimum number of hours in the field, even when there was nothing to do. Many agents would go to the movies all day or hang out at the library. Unmarried agents were expected to live like monks, and he would often obstruct marriages of agents he didn't approve of. Once agents were married, they were often spied on, as having affairs outside of marriage was strictly forbidden. Even minor transgressions resulted in a letter of censure. Too many strikes against you and you could be transferred to the most inhospitable places or placed on the bicycle, the euphemism for forcing agents to resign by reassigning them every few months. The ultimate sanction, dismissal with prejudice, meant you would never be eligible for another federal job and would have no reference for future jobs. An agent's life was dangerous and until 1934, they were only allowed to carry guns in an emergency. Nevertheless, despite the risks and harsh discipline, they received better pay and benefits than most federal employees and had a spirit of corps like no other organization in the government. At the end of 20 years, you qualified for a generous pension and a good second career based on your FBI background. In the hungry 1930s, the FBI was a real home to many men. For agents that were killed in the line of duty, their widows were given a pension and a guaranteed clerical job if they wanted it. Agents came to call Hoover Kid Napoleon in his younger days in reference to his short stature, as his height is estimated to have been between 5'7 and 5'10. 
Hoover compensated for this with special platform shoes and placing his desk on a raised platform so agents had to speak up to him while in his office. Edgar was both loved and loathed by his men. In many ways, the agency was a strict patriarchal family with Edgar as the father. In Hoover's later years, he was referred to as the old man, a popular catchphrase for a fatherly figure. Hoover would never admit when he was wrong, and agents learned to accept that he was always right. When Hoover refused to accept hard evidence that the civil rights movement wasn't communist-backed, the assistant director simply admitted that the director was right and that his report was wrong. When Edgar declared the report on the mafia as baloney, the researchers didn't fight his conclusions. On one occasion, when the director accidentally announced his grief at the death of an agent who had just been wounded, the agent's colleagues joked about drawing straws to finish him off. Hoover always limited the agency to missions he thought they could complete successfully. He avoided fighting drug trafficking because he feared exposing his agents to corruption and because he saw little chance of success. For similar reasons, he stayed away from enforcing prohibition. Indeed, while he was director, the Bureau had authority over a very small percentage of crimes committed in the United States. He focused the agency on more achievable goals like killing John Dillinger or finding the Lindbergh kidnapper. I want to take a quick moment here to thank our Patreon supporters for making this show possible and those of you who have made one-time contributions to the podcast. These shows typically take 10 to 15 hours of research and writing to put up, and the episodes can cost between 10 to $50 in books and resources, not counting the cost of hosting the podcast and the website. So if you enjoy episodes like this, uh, which examine the intelligence topics like the CIA or FBI, episodes about Cold War personalities like this episode or episode about Truman or Forrestal, or American politics like episode 12 about the election of 1948, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter to the website at the $5 level or for whatever amount you think is appropriate. If you're not in a financial position to become a sustaining member, consider making a one-time donation or share this uh, or an episode you truly enjoyed on social media. To make a donation, visit the website at www.historythecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Tired of this ad already and want to get back to the episode? Consider becoming a Patreon supporter to get your commercial-free episodes so that you won't have to listen to me beg for more, more money. Back to the show. By the late 1940s, the FBI was a very popular institution within the United States. Edgar had also held sway with Congress as well. He kept files in every major politician and everyone on Capitol Hill. Far from being like many other agency heads which had to beg for appropriations every year, Hoover had all of his budget requests approved from 1924 to 1971. There was not a single public hearing on the FBI's budget. Hoover presented himself as the obedient civil servant, and in theory his boss was the attorney general. But in reality, no one dared told him no or risked a head-to-head public confrontation with Hoover. His secret leverage and public prestige with the American people was just too great. The eight presidents who he served, of course, had the power to fire him, but after Truman, they ceased to be able to control him, despite their desires to do so. Presidents and politicians had to live under the constant danger that Hoover could release their darkest secrets and destroy their careers. Hoover's bureaucratic index empire was both an organizational marvel and a democratic nightmare. Even today, few outside the FBI understood the record system. While Hoover was alive, few in the outside world were even aware of its existence. The file contained categories like the obscene file, the sex deviant program, official and confidential, etc. 
It even had a do not file system so named to keep reports on illegal break-ins out of the central records keeping system. The files all remained under the control of Hoover throughout his life. By the late 1940s, Hoover had constructed an impenetrable fortress of secrets that preserved his absolute power over those who served him, bending off his enemies and fundamentally weakening the civil liberties of the United States. Nonetheless, Hoover felt less certain about his future, despite his immense power after the war. At 51, he clung to hopes of becoming Attorney General or Supreme Court Justice and a future Republican administration, which looked like a promising opportunity after the Republican sweep of 1946. But Truman's victory in 1948 dashed these hopes. He put dreams of the presidency behind him, and there were some speculation that he might quit the FBI and become baseball commissioner. Hoover was also in a heated feud with the administration over Soviet intelligence infiltration of the administration. To help fight this battle, he enlisted Senator McCarthy and Richard Nixon, who he supplied with information to which, it, in turn, it started the Second Red Scare and a nationwide crackdown on leftists. On the personal front, rumors around his sexuality were dogging him. Once at a dinner attended by the highest law officials of the nation, Edgar was overwhelmed with embarrassment when a female entertainer tried to sit on his lap. By all accounts, he jumped up and fled the room, embarrassing himself and adding credence to the rumors. By this point, many figures in government and around Washington presumed he might be gay. Records show that aspects of Hoover's personal life became known to Truman in 1949. Truman, though, is said to have said he didn't care what a man did on his own time if he got the job done. Nevertheless, he was understandably upset when Hoover reported on some of the inappropriate sexual activities of two of his aides. Hoover's constant companion and presumed lover during this period and the rest of his life was Clyde Telson. Telson was born in 1900 near Ladero, Missouri. His parents were poor, and when he was a boy, they moved to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. As a boy, Clyde wanted to become a police officer, and legend has it he carried his toy police badge into adulthood. When Clyde turned 18, he took the train to Washington, and after a year in business college, he took a clerk job with the War Department. By all accounts, he was a good-looking man and intelligent, and it quickly won a promotion. Like Hoover, he attended night classes at GWU to get his law degree. In 1927, remembering his boyhood dream, with his law degree in hand, he applied to the FBI. The Bureau had no vacancies at the moment, but the Secretary of War gave Clyde a personal recommendation. Edgar reviewed the application and then immediately hired him. Hoover favored Clyde more than any other agent. In the space of three years, he went from being a rookie agent to assistant director of the FBI. Clyde never had any field experience. After serving his first four months in Boston, Hoover summoned him back because of an emergency. After this, Clyde worked briefly in Buffalo before being promoted to inspector and being reassigned to Washington. Within weeks of returning to Washington, yet again, Hoover had Clyde included on White House invitations lists. It was blatant favoritism. But Clyde was absolutely loyal to Hoover and a trusted lieutenant and a compatible companion. Edgar was a talker, and Clyde was the type of person that listened more than he spoke. In Clyde's eyes, Hoover could do no wrong. Clyde, like Hoover, had issues with women as well. His hometown girlfriend quickly dumped him after he moved to Washington. Then, while he was at law school, his second girlfriend cheated on him and became pregnant by another man. Most agents at the FBI hated Tulson. He was cold and vindictive. Many said he got pleasure out of punishing and firing subordinates. Even Helen Gandy kept her distance from Tulson. Many others saw him as Hoover's pathetic toady. It soon became clear that Edgar and Clyde were more than colleagues. 
Every day at noon, they would dine together at the Mayflower Hotel. For the next 40 years, minus a brief quarrel with management, the two would eat dinner at Harvey's restaurant. Under an agreement Clyde made with a business friend of Hoover's, all their meals at the restaurant were, were covered. Edgar liked the restaurant's green turtle soup and took part in the oyster-eating competitions and usually won. Despite his strict rules around his agent's drinking, Hoover enjoyed drinking, especially whiskey, his favorite whiskey being Granddad. Naturally, people started to speculate that Hoover and Tolson were lovers as early as the 1930s. Most of the FBI agents and staff didn't know what to make of it. In the 1960s, agents would joke about J. Edna and Mother Tolson. Edgar's private photo collection was filled with pictures of Clyde, many of which were intimate, such as Clyde sleeping, Clyde in a bathrobe, Clyde reclining by the pool, yet they never moved in with each other. Both continued to own their own residences, and at the office, nothing seemed unusual about their relationship. Guy Hotel, a young executive for Aetna Insurance, shared an apartment with Clyde for years. When he lost his job, Hoover got him a placement with the Bureau. The three would go on fishing trips and remained constant companions for about 10 years. Before his death, he recalled the vacations that they would take in California and Florida at taxpayers' expense while partying with the Ford executives. He said that Clyde and Edgar cut their distance from women. Hoover and Tolson also frequented the private boxes of known homosexuals at the Del Mar racetrack in California. The model Louisa Stewart, who was not a political figure or enemy of Hoover, recalls that Hoover and Tolson were holding hands throughout New Year's 1936. At one point, while at the Cotton Club, Hoover became enraged that a black man and white woman were dancing. Clyde, drunk, announced to the table that he would like to dance with Hoover, which led to an awkward silence. Throughout this period, though, Hoover continued to be socially seen with women. There has been much debate about this. Some say that he might have purely enjoyed their company. Others that he was trying to dispel rumors of his homosexuality. And finally, others that he was attempting to prove something to himself as he had never had a heterosexual relationship with a woman. There was also a series of rumors about Hoover cross-dressing, most notably Susan Rosenstiel. But she lacks credibility as she pleaded guilty to an attempted perjury in 1971 and later served time in a New York City jail. No pictures or hard evidence has ever really surfaced to corroborate these stories. The whispers and rumors around his sexuality deeply angered him, and he retaliated whenever possible with the full weight of the FBI. Even ordinary citizens that made a joke or a passing comment about the director could receive a visit by FBI agents if they were reported to the Bureau. Beyond his ego and the social humiliation of being outed as a homosexual in the era might cause, being a homosexual was considered a serious security risk during the Cold War. Homosexuals in influential positions were favorite targets of both the KGB and the CIA. They can be blackmailed into providing classified information. Despite the rumors around his sexuality, publicly he viciously persecuted homosexuals throughout his life. Edgar would make sweeping public statements about eliminating sexual deviance from society. Nor were these empty threats either. Agents infiltrated homosexual organizations, recording names and taking photos. Even after his death, the FBI investigated homosexuals as subversives until 1995. Men such as Martin Luther King and Adelaide Stevenson were accused by Hoover of being homosexuals, even though there is no evidence then or now. Again, I can't emphasize how different the world was back then in contrast to today. To even be accused of such actions by a highly regarded figure in American life like Hoover could seriously damage your career. Hoover might have been so concerned by these rumors about his sexuality that he visited psychiatrists in 1946. Dr. William Clark King 
King referred Hoover to a colleague, Dr. Marshall Ruffin. Edgar ceased to see Ruffin after a short time, but reportedly consulted with him as late as 1971. Dr. Ruffin's notes are not available as he burned his medical records shortly before his own death in 1984. His wife, if she's to be believed, in 1990 said that her husband had shared with her that Hoover was indeed a homosexual. Homosexuality wasn't the only vice he ostracized as well. He railed publicly against pornography and endlessly mandated action against the peddlers of filth, or as he called them, parasites. As late as 1960, agents discovered with Playboy magazine could be publicly rebuked in front of their colleagues, saying that people who read such magazines were moral degenerates. Privately, though, Hoover not only enjoyed Playboy, but viewed pornographic movies in the blue room of the crime records. The director wanted to view all the obscene material that the Bureau captured and was irate that agents had failed to bring in pictures of black activist Angela Davis having sex. Instead of running for president himself in 1952, he became a political kingmaker. He would use the power of the FBI, his personal connections, and popularity of his name to help candidates get elected. Hoover made powerful friends, such as the Texan oilman Clint Murchison and Sid Richardson. Between the two of them, they had about $700 million, not counting untapped reserves. Three had become friends in the late 1940s. They were attracted to Hoover's political influence, and he was attracted to their money. They would often invite him to Texas for hunting trips, and Edgar considered them some of his closest friends. They had traditionally been conservative Southern Democrats, until Truman publicly denounced their tax privileges and vetoed bills that would have made them even richer. Murchison's views were far right. He was a dedicated supporter of states' rights, and is rumored to have supported the anti-Semitic press, and was a primary source of money for the American Nazi Party and its leader, Lincoln Rockwell, who considered Edgar, quote, our kind of people, close quote. Murchison had helped to support McCarthy with money and placed airplanes at the senator's disposal and promised to support him to the bitter end. 1952 election, the Texans put their money behind Eisenhower and Richard Nixon, Edgar's young friend from California. Beyond help with money, Hoover also helped coordinate attacks against the Democratic candidate Adlate Stevenson. Agents worked to dig up dirt on the governor, and Edgar supplied Eisenhower with information around Stevenson's 1949 divorce. October, right before the election, Senator McCarthy used a nationwide TV address to produce a documented background on Stevenson, claiming that he was a communist. None of this was true, but it helped to produce the desired result, a nationwide Republican landslide. The Eisenhower administration issued 60 oil leases on federal land during his first term, compared with only 16 the past 55 years. Edgar viewed Eisenhower as the greatest president he ever served under and the happiest time of his life. Eisenhower gave Hoover the National Security Medal, and Hoover named Eisenhower the first honorary member of the FBI. Nevertheless, Eisenhower was concerned about Hoover's mass surveillance. He didn't want loyal and innocent Americans prosecuted for being communists. He loathed McCarthyism, which Hoover supported to the very end. Moreover, he didn't use the FBI as a tool against his political opponents like FDR. Hoover, in contrast, deplored Eisenhower's decision to invite Khrushchev to America. He thought it created an atmosphere favorable to communism. He also investigated Eisenhower's private life and rumors around his affair with Kay Summersby, Eisenhower's young British chauffeur during the war. It's debated, but some claim that he had an affair with her. By this point, Hoover had also grown notoriously corrupt. He had four custom-built armored limousines. Even the president only had one. One in Washington, one in Los Angeles, one in Miami, and one in New York. 
His cars were always kept running, so if he had to run to an appointment at the last minute, he wouldn't be late. When Edgar and Clyde traveled, agents traveled ahead of them to smooth their way. Gas station toilets were inspected and cleaned in advance in case the director should need to use the facilities. Hoover only drank from newly opened bottles for fear of being poisoned. Agents across the country were also taught the, the wisdom of writing to Hoover regularly to congratulate him on his birthday, the anniversary of his appointment to the director, or simply to tell him that he was wonderful, and Hoover absolutely loved receiving these letters. Hoover loved to receive gifts, and many gifts accompanied these letters. A well-timed gift officials learned could win the master's favor. He really liked flowers, especially azaleas. The higher the official, the more costly the gifts, and Hoover was always hitting up his agents for gifts. Hoover lived virtually free at taxpayers' expense. FBI personnel took care of his lawn, constructed a deck for his house, and installed a redwood fence. When he complained it took too long for his TV to warm up, FBI technicians labored to fix the issue. The FBI laboratory even invented a heated toilet seat for him. Edgar and Tulson loved horse racing and attended races in Florida, California, Maryland, West Virginia, and New York. Racing and the gambling that went with it became an addiction for Edgar. He issued standing orders that he was not to be bothered on Saturdays and once defied President Johnson's orders to return to D.C. for a cabinet meeting. Were they alive today, Hoover and Tulson would have been dismissed and faced federal prosecution. They were guilty of several federal offenses, including the use of government property, accepting gifts from lesser-paid employees. The scale of this abuse alone would have made him liable for up to 10 years in prison. Another deeply troubling and controversial aspect of Hoover's legacy was his relationship with organized crime. Hoover claimed that organized crime didn't exist and that it was a hoax. Nonetheless, he wasn't delusional or out of touch. Hoover must have been aware of their existence given his mass surveillance. It wasn't like the mafia was really trying to hide. So why didn't he recognize its existence and combat it? We really don't know why, but there are three major theories. Theory one is he personally benefited from ties with the mob. In the FBI's early history, it participated in investigations against the mob. It helped to enforce prohibition in Ohio, and they arrested Al Capone for contempt of court in 1929, although it was the IRS that eventually put him away for tax fraud. In the 1930s, as we saw, he concentrated on individual crimes like the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby or arresting bandits like Dillinger, but the Bureau did declare the mob boss Dutch Schultz public enemy number one in 1935. Yet by the late 1930s, Hoover seemed to lose interest in fighting the mafia and claimed that it was an, an issue for local law enforcement. World War II was a boom time for organized crime. The government secretly collaborated with the mob. The New York mob helped to protect the waterfront from sabotage, and the leader of the mob, uh, Lucky Luciano, was released from jail. Mafia contacts also helped the Allies with liberation of Sicily and southern Italy during the war as well. Hoover himself had a number of close associations with the mob. Clyde and Edgar were close friends with Walter Winchell, a crime reporter with close ties to the underworld. Winchell was on the first-name basis with Meyer Lansky. Clyde and Hoover joined Winchell as regulars at many events infested with mob guests. In Florida, where Hoover vacationed regularly, Joe's Stone Crabs was one of his favorite restaurants, a restaurant also frequented by Capone, Costello, and Lansky. Richardson Oil Lease Company was also 20% owned by the Vito Genovese crime family as well. Another Murchison company, Henridge Oil, was heavily involved with the Teamsters and Jimmy Hoffa, which had credible ties with the mob. 
According to a second theory, the mob had knowledge of Hoover's homosexual behavior and blackmailed him. According to mob boss Johnny Roselli, Edgar had been arrested in New Orleans in the early 1920s for homosexuality. New Orleans was exceptionally corrupt at this time, and the mob was able to have him released. Another story claimed Lansky had photos of Hoover caught in homosexual acts. The truthfulness of these claims is hard to gauge. It seems unlikely at the height of the first Red Scare, Hoover had time to travel to New Orleans. Second, in the early 1920s, Hoover was not yet head of the Bureau. How would the Mafia know it would be important to save Hoover from arrest as he would become a major law enforcement figure in the future? In reference to the supposed photos of Hoover, none have ever surfaced. Moreover, some in the mob have said that Lansky was a stool pigeon for the FBI. Lansky himself could have made up the story to explain his close relationship with Hoover with his mob associates, or the mob could have been bluffing the entire time. They might have created the story of the photos believing Hoover and his paranoia might believe that they did somehow have photos of him caught in sexual acts, thus making him hesitant to move against the mob. A third theory was that, as pointed out before, Hoover was only fought the fights he knew he could win. With the war and the American government's ties to the mob, Hoover might have felt that it was a losing proposition for the Bureau to try and fight against the mob. A war against the mob would alienate many politicians and wealthy Americans in a battle the FBI might not win. Hoover might have decided it was better to work with the mob versus fighting against them. What the real story is, we will probably may never know, since most people from that time have passed away. Nonetheless, it's clear that they had some type of relationship, or at the very least, an understanding. Lansky didn't have a serious federal effort to indict him until 1970, two years before Hoover's death. In the end, even the IRS charges of tax evasion collapsed, and Lansky lived a, as a free man until his death in 1983. The 1960s brought startling change to the nation and the FBI. Hoover was now 65, and many people wanted to see him retire. The world was changing as all things do. The new attorney general, Bobby Kennedy, the president's younger brother, at 35, was half Hoover's age. Hoover found it difficult to report to a man so young. Unlike past attorney generals, Bobby wasn't afraid of Hoover. Hoover told a friend that Bobby was an arrogant whippersnapper and a little son of a bitch. Bobby had the habit of barging into Hoover's office unannounced. He insisted on instant communications and installed a buzzer to summon him at will. Hoover had it replaced only to find a hotline phone installed on his desk. Bobby constantly nagged him as well about civil rights issues and hiring more black agents, subjects Hoover detested. Bobby also attacked Hoover's cult of personality within the Bureau. Traditionally, only pictures of Hoover had hung in FBI offices. Now a picture of his brother, President Kennedy, flanked every picture of Hoover. Bobby also had a bust of the original Bureau Directory, Stanley Finch, placed at FBI headquarters. Many people assumed that Hoover had created the FBI from scratch and were surprised to know of any other director. It was also a subliminal message that the Bureau and Hoover were not one and the same. Hoover lost his traditional private access to the president as well. Hoover and JFK never spoke over the phone. The Kennedy brothers thought Hoover was strange and out of touch with reality and wanted to remove him. John Kennedy was hesitant to remove him from office. He was an extremely popular figure, and removing him would have a political cost. Hoover quickly fought back. He knew the president's weakness was his lust for women. Kennedy had just squeaked out a victory against Nixon in 1960. A scandal right before the 1964 election could cripple the president's re-election prospects. Kennedy, though, quickly lost patience with Hoover and in 1962 was seriously looking at firing him. 
Nevertheless, Hoover discovered the administration's connections with the mafia and a plot to assassinate Fidel Castro, the same mafia JFK's brother was trying to prosecute. From that point on, Edgar was untouchable. If Kennedy dismissed him, he would let loose the president's secret attempt to kill Castro via the mob. Not only would it crush the president's re-election hopes, but both brothers could face serious criminal charges. 1963 saw Kennedy assassinated and Johnson became president. Johnson loved sleaze and Edgar indulged his appetite. Wiretaps and bugs were placed on countless politicians and private citizens from the Kennedys to Martin Luther King. Johnson loved to learn about their private sexual lives and what hypocrites they were. Citizens who sent telegrams to the president criticizing his policies had their backgrounds checked. By 1968, the nation was in a virtual state of chaos, and the war, politically speaking, was going bad in Vietnam. Edgar, 73, was still healthy for his age. Clyde, five years younger, was showing his age, though. He had undergone open-heart surgery and had suffered from the first of several strokes. His eyesight was so feeble he could hardly read. Edgar hated to see Clyde so weak. When he stumbled and fell at the racetrack, he ordered his agents not to help him up and to let him help himself up. Many more voices were calling for Hoover's retirement now. Even a couple of former agents had written damaging books on his leadership of the agency. He no longer commanded the popularity that he once had with the nation as well. His stand against the civil rights movement and his support for the war in Vietnam and the use of agents to infiltrate the anti-war movement and alienated millions of Americans. 1968 had one great stroke of luck for Hoover, though. His old friend Richard Nixon had come out of the political wilderness to win the election of the presidency. Hoover and his oil men friends did all they could to help him win the presidency. Privately, though, like many in Washington, Nixon doubted Edgar's competency for the job and was secretly considering replacing him. By April 1972, Hoover had suffered a bad fall, cutting open his forehead. Many of his friends, such as Clint Merchinson, his old friend Frank Bonham, and Walter Winchell, had all died. Edgar's last day alive was ironically May Day. He went to work alone as Clyde was sick and stayed at work until 6. He went to Clyde's apartment for dinner and probably arrived home around 10.15. Gandhi claimed that sometime around 10 to midnight, Nixon called Hoover and told Hoover that he was going to let him go. Shattered, Hoover called Clyde. Clyde subsequently told Gandhi. After 59 years of service, the news must have been devastating for Hoover. Despite all his support for Nixon over the years, he was still betrayed in the end. This is pure speculation on my part, but if Gandhi's story is to be believed, his departure from the FBI was, must have been such a psychological blow to his sense of being, he probably couldn't imagine life without the FBI. Edgar's black house servant, Annie Fields, who had an apartment in the basement, came up to fix breakfast as Edgar usually came down around 7.30. The chauffeur arrived around 7.45, and James Crawford arrived to consult with Hoover about some work he was doing on the house. When Hoover didn't arrive by 8.30, they went up to check on him and found him laying on the floor with his pajama pants and no shirt. They called the doctor and Clyde immediately. When the doctors found the body, he had been dead for some time. They were rather surprised, given Hoover's good health. He didn't take medication for blood pressure or heart disease. There was nothing to suggest that Hoover would die other than his age. Four hours after he had died, men were searching his house from top to bottom, rifling through drawers, taking books off shelves one by one and looking through the pages. President Nixon is said to have greeted Hoover's passing with a long silence, and then the statement, Jesus Christ, that old cocksucker. Close quote. Publicly, Nixon treated the death of Hoover as the passing of an American hero. 
it was ordered that he should be lie in state at the Capitol, the first civil servant to receive such an honor. In the ensuing Watergate scandal, Nixon would regret the departure of Hoover. He always said Hoover would have protected him against such a fate. The next day, Hoover's body was moved to the Capitol with great ceremony, where it lay in state on the black bier that had once held the body of Lincoln and eight other presidents. Inside, citizens filed past to pay their respects at a rate of a 1000 an hour. To millions of Americans, Hoover was still a hero. Outside, a few hundred protesters were listening to a reading of the names of 48,000 Americans who had been killed in Vietnam. In conclusion, Hoover represents one of America's most complex figures. In our present context, knowing what we know now, it's hard to think of Hoover as an American hero. He was certainly an influential figure that is perhaps too overlooked in American history. Hoover did certainly address real challenges to the United States, such as the anarchist bombings, the crime wave of the 1930s, and German and Soviet espionage, but he didn't also uphold many of the values he claimed to represent or hold up. Not to make excuses for Hoover, but he was a product of his time. He wasn't the only politician during the period who was corrupt and had connections with the mob. He didn't arrive out of nowhere, but came of age in the American political system of the 1920s and 30s. Hoover was in many ways an American Machiavellian prince who tried to rule and protect his fiefdom, the FBI. Make sure you join us next episode as we examine the life of Levantia Beria, the head of the KGB in the Soviet Union. We will look at how Beria managed to survive the cutthroat politics of the Kremlin, yet to be killed in a coup. I want to, as always, thank our Patreon contributors for making this show possible. If you like this show or any of our past episodes, please consider sharing it on social media or with a friend. We don't have a lot of friends in the history, and you're already a contributor, but would still like to help the podcast. Give it us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you want to follow us on social media, check out pictures for this episode, ask questions, or donate to the podcast, check out the website at www.historythecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Well there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. fitness you can get down with your judgment-free self join for only one dollar down ten dollars a month no commitment now through january 15th planet fitness has cardio weights and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of new Year's champagne only one dollar down ten dollars a month no commitment now through january 15th join in club or online at planetfitness.com planet fitness the judgment-free zone offer expires january 15th stop by any of our 15 area locations annual membership fee applies participating locations only see club for details at Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.